mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamant. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you, Robert? Today, Russell, mm. I am struck by a moment of sonder. And for those who don't know what the word sonder means, because to be fair, I didn't actually know that word prior to researching this episode. But the word sonder was written by a, a writer called John Koenig, and it's the realisation that every random passerby is living a life as vivid and complex as your own. This is a oh, quote, yeah. by the way. And they are populated with their own ambitions, friends, routines, worries, inherited craziness, epic stories, and they sort of go on all around you invisibly. And sometimes you have that kind of moment where you might stand still and be like, oh my God, like that person in front of me in the queue, you know, getting their coffee is going through some massive you know life event that that you're not even like privy to but it's kind of all around you and a I was fascinated by this idea of like you know inventing kind of new languages and new words still to this day and that people are coming up with words to kind of explain you know the human emotions that somehow existing language doesn't express Mm. and for me it brought to me to this place of like that's why I love art because I think Art for me, you know, you have as a viewer, you have this kind of curiosity, empathy, you know, a desire for understanding and a need for connection. And somehow all those emotions and all those complex feelings that we can have within ourselves, somehow artists for me always sum things up way better than than words ever have done. It also got me thinking about something that's very close to this artist's work and also just the kind of history of of um of, of the kind of development of their work um, is this idea of notebooks. And you, Russell Tovey, mm. have really instilled in me the, the kind of importance of keeping notes. And mm. um, you yourself kind of, you know, write so many notes before every episode we do. But mm. also I've seen you kind of annotate your scripts. And it got me thinking about, you know, when I was a teenager and as a songwriter, how, how the kind of strength that you can feel from writing down your feelings in silence, you know, just you in the page. And it got me thinking about how other creatives, visual artists, including today's guest, uses notebooks as this kind of place to kind of express themselves. And then those tiny seeds and thoughts and very 
quiet reflections can turn into like giant, you know, ideas that then travel the world and become public um, installations and, you know, can cover the walls of complete galleries and things. And I love that idea in the strength of notebooks. So I wanted just to make our listeners consider that. And if you're not making notebooks or, you know, writing in notebooks, keeping a diary, maybe think about it because it's a really great thing to do. So on that note, mm. we would like to welcome to Talk Art... Kentura, Kentura Davis. Davis. Hi. Hi, Kentura. <laughs> it's really nice to be in this space with you. I'm so excited. And I'm I'm really uh, moved at the way you sort of introduce um, what will be our conversation today, talking about notes and writing and notebooks. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was just really struck by it because I know in your work you've you've actually done amazing things in the sense of um, you've, you've actually created like notebooks where you then compile them up as like books, if, if you like, but you can pile them up um, in piles of paper, but then you can also pin them across walls of galleries. And I loved that kind of idea of this very intimate, you know, small uh, pile of notes and then versus the kind of expansive, you know, filling up of space in a weird way. Right. Well, it's... Uh... I, I really enjoy thinking about books as a form, as this kind of object that is mm -hmm. dense with information. And so here's this portable thing that can be entirely mentally immersive. And so sort of um, bringing that over into an art object, thinking of, a, of an art object that can, in one way, just be a stack of pages that's quite portable but then can expand into this like massive immersive wall drawing. That was a way for me to think about like the book as a form and how uh, a kind of duality between something that's like compact and um, expansive in the way that mm. it can tell a story and immersive, immerse us in a narrative or another kind of world, that kind of thing. So mm. I, I love the intro because, you know, it's something that feels quite archaic about keeping a diary. I've had a physical diary, like a day-to-day -day diary since <laughs> like 2006 that I have the same moleskin diary every year. I have to get it at Christmas and then, and that's something that I've, they're all the same and I've kept them on the shelf and I guess that's sort of my hoarding thing. But there's something archaic about it and people are like, oh, don't you just put diary on your phone now? And I'm like, no, because it's just lost. And also this thing with handwriting, you know, with letter writing, again, feels really old and, 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 and What's amazing about your work and what, what you celebrate is the slowing down and the fact that handwriting is something that nowadays, unless you, know, unless you are quite rubbish at typing on the keyboard, has to, it physically it slows you down to write. Right. I, I sometimes hear people say that you take better note handwriting because you have to be more selective um, about what it is that you're absorbing as you hear. Like I can type, obviously most people can type faster than they handwrite, but to have to handwrite something, it's you're making these decisions as you're hearing or as you're, you know, coming across thoughts that I really, um, I remain uh, committed to the analog <laughs> and yeah. uh, handwriting notes. I also have my piles of, moleskin notebooks i love those oh notebooks. you do yeah. <laughs> yeah let's try and get some free moleskin now <laughs> exactly plug um and uh and if you could see my desk it's like covered with post-it notes 
Oh, really? Um, yeah. I was just going to add to, um, you know, your reflection on keeping a notebook and writing, which is kind of what brought me to the work, guided me to the work I make now. Whereas before, when I was growing up, I thought I was like a painter, a painter's painter. And I wanted to work that way. And then um, at some point, uh, early in my adulthood, kind of abandoned that way of working uh, in favor of thinking about language and writing. Mm. Well, just doing the research on you, and it, and it feels like the language, the text, is the starting point for like the destination comes from that point. And then, then also, I was doing research, and, and you cite Toni Morrison's essay "Sites of Memory," which I would advise everybody to read. It took me about twenty minutes to read it. It's incredible. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. And and but Toni Morrison that says she starts with the image. So there's this kind of is that right? And then it feels like, but then this, and then I went back to yours and then I was like, Oh no, hang on. You do start with the image because you start with a photograph and it suddenly feels like there's two different narratives that are like pathways that go into your practice for you. Yeah, it's true. It's kind of, it kind of forms a loop, uh, and maybe even like a chicken and the egg scenario, like which comes mm. first. And, um, and so there's always this kind of simultaneous uh, activity of photographing people and, um, and writing or um, synthesizing texts that I'm reading. And you know, it's true, like one of the things I love about that Toni Morrison essay is her um, speaking very directly about moving from image to text and back to image because we as viewers then create images as we're reading text. Um, and that kind of back and forth dynamic is like is really interesting to me. So sometimes um, the drawings come out of having the image first. You know, I photograph people on a fairly regular basis, so I have this kind of archive of photographs, um, while also at the same time writing and reading. And so sometimes I identify a photograph that I know I want to work with, and I get a sense of maybe the kind of direction the text might go in, and then the text will present itself. But other times it's the other way around, where. I've identified a text that I really want to work with or phrase, mm-hmm. and then at some point come across the image that kind of locks in and fits together well. But this, this, these are these are stories that you are um, that are based on truth, are you, or are these based are these like imagined or memories that you're then creating when you when you kind of splice the text and the the image together. Yeah, that's a good question. It's been kind of an evolution, but the way um, I've been working or the way I tend to enjoy working is thinking about working in a series and thinking about a particular way we're using language. So, you know, we started off talking about the definition of the word sonder. And so the, there's a series of work um, in that is from the series called Sonder that extends from uh, that uh, definition you read um, from the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows. And so that series was invested in this idea that we in, we can invent new words and that the lexicon isn't this fixed body of text. You know, we grew up with like the Oxford Dictionary and it's a, you know, this big fat book, but they have to update that thing every so often. And then now we've got these online dictionaries that can sort of keep up with the changing shifts 
in meaning that we can extend the meaning of an existing word, invent new words. And so I was really interested in this idea that of like a new word being invented, entering into the world, and then people making use of it. And so Sonder is one of these newer words, but I've seen it in other places on the internet since I first came across it in that dictionary. And the idea that, you know, we're doing this all the time to, to one, you know, in his case, it's like um, thinking of conditions that we maybe don't have a word for in our language and trying to create a new word for it. But then other times it's uh, not necessarily picturing it an experience we're already having, but to make a new word that also um, sort of almost invents a new condition in a way. Yeah. And both of those ways of working with languages is really fascinating to me. You know, I've been really thinking a lot today um, because of many things that you said previously. One of the things that has really, really stuck with me all day has been this connection of art and particularly your art um, and to music. And if you think of like what you're talking about right now with languages and the words that we use, but um, if you think about how certain people when they write poetry um, with, with existing words can totally change the whole perception you have of all of those words in the way that they put them together and create new poetry. And sometimes when you see artwork that you connect to, it's because some of it's a bit familiar and you might recognise something. But often what, what I think we all call genius or, you know, the hottest new artist or all this kind of thing is often someone who's just changed your perception of existing, um, you know... How to uh, look or how to hear. Yeah, yeah, and the existing language that you understand, but somehow they've put it together in a different way. And it got me thinking a lot about jazz, because I think jazz music is one of the genres of music that's, that's so free and so experimental and is constantly pushing boundaries. But also other artists that you've, you've referenced, including people like Timberland, if you think of sampling and music sampling and, and how that sort of pushed things forward. Can you speak a bit about how music sort of is so connected to what you do? Sure. Um, uh, I, I think music has um, another possibility of, um, as you mentioned, this kind of poetic space of even getting beyond language as we articulate things and sort of tapping into things that we maybe don't have language for. And I think um, if I was to connect that to a way I try and approach drawing is, um, you know, making these portraits by writing phrases over and over again to the point that the text almost becomes illegible, that yeah. illegible space in a way kind of points to the space that maybe is just outside of our reach in terms of our ability to describe it. Um, and then sort of urges me to, you know, push how I articulate and perceive what I'm experiencing or what other people might experience. And so, I mean, with the more recent drawings, um, those are more directly um, thinking about that kind of poetic space and trying to develop these phrases that have some sort of musicality to it. Um, one is, uh, which in fact is the title of another series, it's called Blur in the Interest of Precision. 
And that phrase comes from a Fred Moten text, who is a phenomenal poet and, um, and writer. Um, and it, it's just such a beautiful line to think about two things that feel very opposite, um, blur and precision. And it's thinking through where might these two things that feel quite opposite, where might, might they rub up against each other? And so I used that phrase and then other phrases that I came up with or grew out of some other text I was reading to render these intentionally blurry images to think about that sort of gray er the gray areas of language and to think, of, think through what are the limitations of our language. For instance, you know, my... Um, Something I notice is the ways we tend to speak in terms of binary. Like we might propose a question to someone and say, do you think this or do you think that? This and that are opposite poles. And especially when they're, those kinds of questions are directed at me, oftentimes my answer is like both yes and no, somewhere in the middle. And so I was trying to making these images that point to that space in language that try and... Um, disrupt the kind of binaries that we've got set up and that we tend to rely on when we're communicating and giving more space to this poetic, to this kind of liminal space, the in-between. Um, so that's another way I kind of approach making the work that, to get back to your original question about music, I think music does, handles so beautifully. Yeah. It is, well, people coming to your work will, will really recognize uh, the blurriness and the doubling, and it's in it's all very intentional, as you're saying in your work, and you, you, you're quoted as saying as finding refuge in the blur and doubling. For you, it's a real safe space. But this this intentional doubling has this psychological effect on on the figures, on on the, the characters that appear in your work, and that's that's important to you because what you're saying about like what what's missing with language, what that means, but it's also this when you have an interaction with someone, how can you render that interaction in just one image? It ha it's so moving constantly. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's, I think it's also thinking through, um, you know, when we have these kind of like visual or sensory experiences, we're very quick to want to categorize things. And that's, you know, that's one of the beautiful things that language facilitates is, the fact that we can categorize things, identify things very quickly, like maybe there's a situation that's dangerous. We need to articulate that, know that very quickly to sort of remove us from that. Um, and then all other sorts of different ways we want to categorize. Um, but in some ways it fails us. And so when we think about the ways we categorize, you know, race and gender and all these sort of moving um, variables in terms of how we categorize and then Furthermore, how we draw conclusions, there's some value to me, for me, in slowing down how we draw conclusions. And that, again, is, um, I try to achieve through the blurry image. There are images, figures that register as figurative when you look at it, but don't quite ever resolve. resolve. So when you see it, some of these drawings from a distance, um, your eye, what I think is so interesting about blurry images is your eyes try to lock it into focus. And then there's maybe some sense that as you get closer, there will be more clarity when in fact, as you get closer to these drawings, they fall apart even more. 
And so I really enjoy that <laughs> dynamic that kind of destabilizes how we draw conclusions about our visual experience. So the slowing down of an audience is is celebratory for you. You want the audience. Yes. <laughs> that that's the thing. Okay. And and also well when you do get close up to the work, what what you are then drawn to is the materiality because you were talking about the text in there but there is like a, a an embossing in the paper there's a certain paper you use which is which is a I've written it down I don't want to get it wrong a cozo paper which cozo. you're going to have to explain cozo paper you have to explain what that is but there's like when you get closer there's there's a, like a modernist grid which goes through all of your works which isn't something which is something you again celebrate as part of the materiality rather than um trying to use that as a device and then get rid of that afterwards it's like the or you like to see the the artist is present in your work right okay so there's a lot <laughs> i get, I, get excited <laughs> because I, I really enjoy making this work but um okay one the kozo paper i'm really obsessed mm. with papers and it comes maybe from my background with printmaking um but uh i source most of the paper from um uh, ja- uh, Japanese paper makers. And so one of the fibers is Kozo. Um, mm. And it's just got a really sort of supple feel. Um, I usually get the thickest possible paper I can that's available. And um, so it's supple enough to, uh, it, it's handled really well with a lot of pressure when I emboss these forms and shapes into it. And then it also has a sort of like snappy texture that absorbs the oil paint that I use to stamp the text really well. And even when I handwrite the drawings and you mentioned the grid. So the grid sort of functions partly as an organizational tool. Um, so what maybe I should describe like uh, in more detail, an example of a kind of drawing. Yeah. So um some of them are uh, made, rendered with rubber letter stamps. And so I put a grid on the paper and they're usually like a one inch square grid. And um, I organize the text so that it reads from left to right. So I'll sort of with a pencil, just plot what letter belongs to each square in a way that it reads in sequence of the way you'd read it um, just on any other sheet of paper. Um, so, for instance, if I'm describing um, the one, the, a drawing called like Blur in the Interest of pre- Precision, one square will be, I'll use the letter B stamp to render that square of the image, then L, then U, then R. And so they sort of instruct me as to which tool, which letter stamp to use to render that section of the grid. And but is that, sorry, is like, that a rule you'd set yeah. yourself that each square would have one letter in? Is that something that, and then to exactly. begin with? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so part of it is coming from this idea of like, can I make an image entirely by writing? And um, to go back to the conversation about notebooks, you know, when I had quit painting because I was really frustrated with the paintings, I was just keeping a notebook. And so I was writing and there was at one point some notes I wrote overlapped with this little sketch I made. And it was this re- I had this realization that the quality of a written line is no different than the quality of a drawn line, except with the written line, we've assigned meaning to a sequence of marks. And so before we assign meaning, like an X is just two intersecting lines. 
But through language, X comes to mean all sorts of things. It can mean a multiplication symbol. It can mean the X in the alphabet. Um, and so thinking about portraiture and thinking about ourselves as like carriers of meaning, it became sort of interesting to me to try and render an image entirely by writing entirely with these ideas that we can attribute to our human experience. Um, so getting back to the grid, the grid helps me plot <laughs> the letters so I know which stamp to use uh, to render that particular pixel of the grid. And so something that may or not become apparent to a person looking at the drawings is that they are images made entirely by writing. Mm. I, I also love the the hand the, the kind of presence of the hand, you know, yeah. because you're, you're pressing these rubber stamps, even though they've been made, the rubber stamps, you know, with the mm -hmm. letters A, B, C, D, like the fact that you're pressing it. Um, and also the paper itself, like this Japanese paper is also handmade often. Um, I, I read you talk about it before and the importance of this handmade paper. So it feels like this kind of super intense on all levels. It's, like it's, yeah, it's like a long time. Care. How I long do they video. take? I mean... Um, I mean, I can, it depends on the size, uh, but anywhere from like a couple weeks to months, if they're really big, wow. <laughs> it's just working sort of um, square by square and, uh, you know, sort of layering this kind of information. Wow. And um, these rubber yeah. stamps, do you, do you work with the same font or you, do you play with fonting and... With the letters? I do. I do. I sort of settled on one that I enjoy the most. And yeah. I there's a, a point where I did try and like customize stamps, but then I found um, a set that I can uh, replenish because the stamps get worn out after so much use. Um, yeah. So now I can actually just buy it at this sort of like art store. Um, but it's a sans serif font. Um, yeah that's just very simple and clean and can get usually gets me all the sort of like gradients and shapes that I want to get when I'm rendering the drawings. There's something so mysterious about those works mm. for me mm. that kind of that, that subconsciously creates this weird curiosity where I'm like like a kid again or something and I want to understand what it is I'm processing. And it, I heard you speak about before your interest in like ancient Egypt and kind of ancient civilizations and the way that they would use, um, you know, shapes and, and, and visual representations to create language. And it, that for me is also like a curiosity thing. You know, when you're a kid and you're mm. learning about different ancient civilizations that are like, you know, 3,000 years ago or whatever it is. Hieroglyphics. Like, yeah, totally. Exactly. Um, can yeah. you chat a bit about that fascination you have? Yeah. I mean, it's funny, you know, growing up, I, I did, I always wanted to be an artist. And, um, but, but it's crazy sort of thinking back through these early child, childhood experiences that later would play a role in the kind of work I'd make that I never would have anticipated. So, I mean, go, as a kid, um, I forget which show, it might've been like, I think it was like a King Tut show that came to LACMA and my parents took us to that. And so that was an early sort of fascination with Egyptian hieroglyphs. And then, um, and then uh, not hieroglyphs, but also um, illuminated manuscripts. The Getty Museum here in Los Angeles has a fantastic yes. collection of illuminated manuscripts. So another kind of like, 
picture image connection. Mm. But thinking about the hieroglyphs in particular, um, I went to grad school at Yale. And one of the great things about that program is the that we can take all these courses in other um, uh, parts of the school. So I took an anthropology course um, on uh, the invention of writing. So we were looking at ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs, Mesopotamian cuneiform. And so thinking about the earliest versions of writing, the earliest versions versions of the written language, and that hieroglyphs, people had to assign meaning to these marks that they would create. And they sort of blurred the distinction between picture and text as they were developing writing um, uh, writing in, in the culture. And uh, one of the things that I find really interesting is, you know, the way that those forms were carved into tablets um, mm. and the kind of materiality that has. And I think that also probably played a role in me sort of introducing embossing to the paper that then there are, all, there are these other marks that are there and available to us by virtue of the shadows, which is also the case for how we view the Egyptian reliefs, for instance. Um, and so those connections, and again, that commitment to the analog of writing and thinking through the history of writing across time and civilizations, that's something I'm always thinking about when I'm working. Well, I think there was a line in, in the Toni Morrison essay, which is, uh, she describes being a literary archaeologist, which Absolutely. I think we, so just, <laughs> this is completely sums up your work. It's like this yeah. kind of like... <laughs> Especially like looking into doing a grad class and the invention of writing. I mean that that must have been completely fascinating and and like so incredibly exciting. It was really exciting, and one of the highlights was um, we went down to the Met, and you know because our professors were experts, we got this sort of like private walkthrough through the um, the Met's collection of um, ancient Egyptian artifacts and. You know, it's just, it's so, it's just such a rich history. You know, mm. you're looking at a shift in how societies work by virtue of inventing writing systems and um, thinking about how we, that history is something that is made and how we make it. And writing be, being one way we record history, whether it's true or not, <laughs> or we embellish upon histories, which happens a lot. Um, but uh, the sort of beauty of all these objects that that were made is something um, you know I try and bring to the objects that I'm making in this time, and have it be somewhat reflective of this moment, um, the moments that we're in through thinking about writing and history making. Yeah, so they're very they're very coded your works because there there are these messages in there, there are these stories, these tales. But where do you source your uh, text from? It, does it come from your own personal narrative, your own personal writing, or do you do you cite it from other people's literature, from essays, for example, and other people's writing you admire? Both, <laughs> all right. of the above. Um, so I'm always in into some texts and usually I'm keeping notes and reflecting off of them. So sometimes they are 
direct excerpts from what I'm reading. And then other times they're my reflections on those texts. And they, they vary in terms of what the themes are. So sometimes I'm thinking about a particular kind of history, but even, you know, very recently, um, a lot of the things that uh, the phrases that I use to render the images are coming from more scientific texts and philosophical texts. For instance, um, I've been reading a lot of philosophy about shadows, <laughs> which really? um, sounds kind that? of random. Yeah, yeah. So um, one, uh, again, I think this was in grad school when I first came across this, and I don't even remember what led me to it, but there's this philosopher, um, Roberto Cassati, and he wrote this book called The Shadow Club. And he starts off the book describing um, his first time encountering a lunar eclipse, or the first time really giving attention to a lunar eclipse. He's in France. Um, he has a telescope out on his balcony. He looks at um, toward the moon during a lunar eclipse. And there's this beautiful line that says the shadow of the earth reveals the true nature of the moon, meaning that in the, um, in earth's shadow, he could see the moon for what it actually is. So normally when we see the moon, it looks like this glowing lofty orb glowing lantern in the sky during an eclipse. Um, he noticed the moon for what it actually is, which is this massive rock. And so it loses its sort of heavenly, like weightless, quality and instead you see the sort of massive you know form in the sky and you notice you know the kind of weight it must have and that was such an interesting thing that points to how we perceive our experiences and and our visual experiences because now the shadow becomes a space that reveals whereas um shadows are we tend to talk about it as something that can conceal something that's dangerous some, and thinking about all the ways we attribute shadow space to different conditions. And so this kind of, that text kind of opened my eyes to really thinking about how we perceive and how contingent it is on like how far something away is, whether, um, what are the lighting conditions of the space? And that maps into uh, our sort of social experience. Why how we perceive things and how the language that we have for them sometimes creates a sort of narrow way as to how to see and identify the qualities of something. So perception, ideas around perception um, have become really interesting. And so finding things that are like difficult, hard to explain like shadows, shadows are really strange entities <laughs> in the world. Um, and then even things like time, reading about texts around time travel, uh, that's been really interesting because, you know, time is something that's like, we know what time is, but then when you really start to get into the mechanics of it, time is really complicated and people would argue that there's no such thing as time. <laughs> and so thinking of all these things and, and the fact that we have language to articulate these things, but sometimes language fails us and... <laughs> Just explaining things that are mm. among us, um, but maybe not as simple as we immediately think of it. 
I was really surprised when I heard you mention NASA before um, in a previous interview that I read with you and this idea of the cosmos and your kind of interests in, in all this other, mm. you know, I don't often hear that from artists, but also I know you're into sci-fi a bit too. So, um, Yeah, it's like your, your that, personal yeah. narrative and slash astrophysics theory is, yeah. is, like, <laughs> is your material. I grew up, I grew up watching Star Trek with my dad. Um, and, uh, that was like something we did every week. Star Trek Enterprise. That's the version <laughs> that we, we grew up and we were pretty obsessed with. So like Jean-Luc Picard, like that was our guy. And, um, so that was kind of implanted early. And then I, something I'll add. So my, my dad's also an artist and for most of my almost all of my growing up, he was a set painter for TV and film. And so one of the films he sets he worked on was the original Tron. And um, that was like the year I was born. So there's this fantastic, (laughs) there's this fantastic photograph of him on set um, pictured with one of the video game consoles that he painted. And so he took some liberties with painting it because he, he painted on women astronauts, which I think at that that point there had been no no women astronauts yet. (laughs) So he painted this into the set and, you know, I don't think it actually made it, you could see it in the film, but anyway, it's a really great picture and he's got his like seventies bro. (laughs) Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN um but you know artifacts like that around the house um also you know piqued my interest into what the possibilities are and just thinking you know we're a speck in the universe and so there are all these other things that are extend beyond our knowledge and again getting back to perception you know our our, what we can perceive is limited and there's always this cusp where we can identify things just at the edge of our perception and that there's much more beyond that. And so that kind of space of thinking through what we know versus what we don't know, that's also very generative for me. Um, And so actually there's in uh, the show I had at Pippi Holdsworth, um, some of those texts about uh, that reference different scientists, um, a couple of them are these are black scientists who talk very intimately and openly about their um, sort of social experience and how that guided them towards thinking about the cosmos and thinking about ideas of like 
studying black holes, which we don't nearly understand, or the idea of, you know, there's another scientist who is literally trying to invent a time machine because he, which started off from him, um, his father passed at a really young age. And so as a kid, he was just trying to, you know, obsessing about how he might reverse that to get his father back. And that eventually led him to studying time and the possibilities of time travel. So those kinds of stories, narratives that branch, you know, the very personal and social with grand themes about time and physics. <laughs> uh, these are other kinds of things that um, fascinate me and that I try and bring into more recently, try and bring into the work. You know, it's really interesting because I heard you speak about your family before and this idea that like we are all both our parents, of course, because they created us, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and and um, it got me thinking a lot about when my father died and how even though he's died, he's still within me. And I take real strength from that. And a kind of like, sometimes I'll be like, oh no, I don't know what to do if you have a crisis or something. But you can almost like summon them within you. And a friend of ours, his dad just died recently. And I'm going to talk to him about this idea of like, somehow, even though you feel like you've lost them, you haven't really lost them because it's like a continuous kind of energy or something and um there was a description that you were talking about which is actually your name so kentura and the way that you your parents you know chose this name for you and the impact that that's then had on your life can you speak a bit about naming in this kind of sure <laughs> so my dad's name is kenneth kenny for short and um they are re were really into this um, Hebrew name, Ketura. So it's Kentura without the N. So they combine that with his name to make my name Kentura. And I have to tell you, my parents did not know the origins of the, besides it being a Hebrew name, did not know the um, sort of etymology of the name Ketura. Um, I figured that out in my adulthood. I just got curious um, which it surprises me that I didn't figure that out sooner. But nonetheless, what I found so fascinating about it is um, Ketura uh, is a word derived from a word for incense, the stuff you burn. And um, in scripture, incense is used as a kind of metaphor for prayer. So the idea that uh, burning incense is a way to extend information or material into this other um, sort of spiritual space. And then when I was looking at that and thinking about it, I thought that it's also maybe another framework to think about how language operates in general, that we can communicate with each other in this way, but and the words that we exchange will continue to live on. Like even, you know, you, um, Robert, very beautifully talking about your father's passing and his sort of um, the presence that remains um, that I think also touches on this idea of like um, things lingering um, even after they're not visibly visible to us anymore. So even burning something like wood, it lingers as a scent after it's sort of um, shifted from its more tangible form as this like object that can be burned. Um, and what I th and then what, what's funny is that the word Kenneth is comes from a word for fire. And so right. there's this collapse of these meanings that 
then I, I feel like kind of maybe help guide the kind of person and artist that I would become. And so there's this also, um, when I, around the time that I made work around my naming, uh, I was looking at sort of other traditions of naming. So the Zosa people um, in South Africa having a very um, uh, explicit way of naming children, um, which is, you know, thinking about like the way you name a child will um, dictate how their lives will be or what their personalities will be like. And so that naming imbues the thing or the person that is named with a kind of quality or characteristic that lives on. So I think that's kind of happened to me <laughs> that I, I, I've come to embody the meaning that is in the name, even without my, even though my parents didn't explicitly know from end to end the meanings of all those. Uh, even that was and, like a subconscious mystery. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I, I'm I'm loving it. I feel like we're in some really beautiful existential conversation that we're all drunk in a field looking at the stars. So <laughs> I mean, where this is going, I'm lo- I'm loving it. I'm loving it. So it's we, nice we touched to do on this with two people instead of having these yeah. conversations to my with myself in your own head. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it's not it's not so much of a crisis, is it? If you're talking to other people, yeah. Right. right. I actually heard that you're a fan of incense now. Uh, don't, oh don't, yeah. Don't you like yeah. What is it? Palo Santo. Is that the one you like? Palo Santo. Yeah. It's this wood that is, it smells, the smell is just so beautiful. And then um, I actually started making. Citrusy, isn't it? Like citrusy and pine. and. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Very like woodsy, but not in the, not in the cedar kind of way. It's got this other kind of scent to it. And it's. Right. I don't know. It's just light. It's hard for me to describe smells, but it's beautiful. I I sometimes think of, of mint with it. There's yeah. something quite minty about it or something. Yeah. It's an interesting smell, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then even recently, I, I, like a few years ago, I figured out how to make my own incense paper. Which, really? Yeah, you can make um, paper into incense. Um, you There's a kind of salt that you add to it, so it burns just like incense. And that's then actually... I mean, I won't get into it here because it's too long, but uh, I started making work out of writing the writing a text on that paper, burning it, and then making ink from the leftover soot to then use to render, make these images. Um, oh. So. There's, there's nothing that. single use about your materials. Oh, <laughs> it's yeah. like. Well, so we were talking, well, these new techniques, it feels like you've really embraced these techniques, but we touched on a show which you had at Pippi Holdsworth Gallery here in London called Lines of Thought. And in that show, what what really struck me is how much design also plays into your practice, how much the framing of your work is so important to you, but also this other technique which we need to talk about, which is this, when you were talking about how you had the paper then and you burn it and the soot, but there's also a thing where you 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 write words and then you you shred them and then you thread them into these sculptural objects as well. And then they are, they are like put on these looms which have this tension in and they can sit alongside the drawings. But they're, right. they're, they're all bound together in these, they're metal, aren't they? The framing, but that's really important to you. The, yeah, well, the frame the frames are wood, and that mm-hmm. um, came. So I was looking at uh, I don't know if, if you're familiar with the artist Sheila Hicks, who's known as this yes. really phenomenal fiber artist, 
And there's a fantastic book um, um, about her work. Um, and in it, there's a reproduction of one of these objects she's made where it's essentially, it's a frame loom. So it's one of these, you know, one version of a weaving loom is just a frame and you can tack some nails into it and then warp it to give the tension and then weave into it. And there's this really beautiful image where it shows a weaving that's still attached to the frame loom. And so I was thinking about, that led me to think about like structure and then the thing we make with the structure. So even language, language, we ha language has a structure and then within it, we can do all sorts of things with it. Um, and then around the time that I came across that image um, and that work, uh, one of the faculty at Yale was like, hey, you should think about the relationship between text and textile. And I have a background in textile because besides my dad being an artist, my mom makes quilts and she taught me how to sew at an early age. And so I've also long had this interest in fabric and textiles. And so to get more directly to your to the point you brought up is the weavings that were um, incorporated into the show. Uh, I came across another book um, that describes this process that was developed in Japan, where you can take paper and process it into thread and then weave with it. And in one of the books that um, I found on this process, it it mythologizes how the process was invented. And so uh, supposedly um, during the feudal period, uh, some spies needed to get across enemy territory. Paper was available, so they got paper, wrote the secret message on the paper, shredded it and uh, uh, processed it into a thread, then wove it into a cloth. So they were able to carry that with them across enemy lines. And then when it got to its recipient, they undid everything to reveal the secret message. And wow. so that was a, something that was just like so poetic to me, just like mm. text and textile becoming one. Um, the word uh, text comes from the word, a word for woven. And so thinking about even how those etymologically are connected and then making an object that embodies bridges both text and textile together. So I started getting, again, more Kozo paper, except a very thin version of it, writing a text um, across uh, the paper and then processing that into thread and then weaving with it into these frames. And the frames are designed in a way that um, it's got holes along the side so I can warp uh, the thread into the frame and then weave with the paper thread um, just right into the frame that's also paired with uh, a portrait. And so it's this idea that here's another kind of material that's embedded with information. It's not legible anymore, but in theory that could be taken out and reveal this sort of hidden tucked away message. Um, and so all the color and the tone that you see is just evidence of the writing that happened before I processed it into threads. How important is it that it is illegible that people can't kind of access the text? I think maybe differently from the drawings, because usually with the drawings, I'll title the drawing after whatever phrase I'm using to render it. it. With mm -hmm. the weaving, I think I was in, I'm more interested in 
the fact that it's uh, it's a material that it's a, that's embedded with information that does not rely on somebody knowing what it says. And even thinking about sort of that story about the development of this process, um, carrying a secret message, like that's an interesting space to think of. And so when somebody sees it, they see sort of these, this flicker of ink, um, the sort of fading from one color to the next. And so it's not immediately apparent that all that tone and color is writing, but it's just embedded mm-hmm. in the cloth. And it also um, connects me to something I realized when I was in that archaeology class um, on the invention of writing. I wrote a paper about a hieroglyph for textile. And I was in that moment of thinking like, oh, weaving was invented way before writing. So weaving perhaps as an earlier version of encoding information into a material, you can put signs and patterns on there that mean something to the culture it belongs to. And so that's another, that's another way I'm thinking about this as like weaving a kind of code that is not legible to anyone, but I know what it is. Right. Wow. And I heard you describe that weaving process as delicate. And I was watching you, I don't know if it was photos or you moving, but I saw the kind of weaving process, your hands. And it really got me into thinking about the opposite almost of everything we've been talking about, which is quite cerebral and intellectual and, you know, your mind, but also this love and joy you have for making and just for like the kind of discipline you have. And yeah, but just like that actual hands on, I really feel it in all of your work. Mm. Um, What is that like for you? that, That idea of like repetition and discipline and making and going to the studio? what is your studio routine and what advice would you give people you know younger artists or whatever because I feel like you are very unique in in the kind of freedom you have across all these mediums and the way that you seem very at ease with your sort of production in a sense oh it might be because everything I do is fairly meditative like because like as you mentioned it there is a lot of repetition so it lends itself to and creating a sort of meditative space to work in. <laughs> so maybe um, that's partly what's what's happening. And maybe what I can say to, you know, artists, um, other artists is, I think, I w- in a way, like, I work very narrowly. Like, I'm interested in language, and I'm interested in the figure and determining ways to address those or how that we intersect with language. Um, And so I like the idea of like, uh, there's this artist um, that is important to me, Andrea Zatel, and she has this phrase where she says, rules make us more creative. And so I think thinking about like parameters and narrowing um, sort of thematically what I'm working on, it just opens so many things up. And so that, the fact that I'm able to go from figurative kind of drawing, text drawings to weaving to making incense paper, all of that is within sort of a narrow kind of framework of thinking about language. But then it's also just like everything's tangible because all these things have qualities. And so as I'm working, I'm learning more and more about like, what can this paper do? Before it was just a surface for me to write on, but now it's also a surface that I can like cut up and form into threads and weave with it. 
Um, and so it's really just being attentive to the material qualities of these things that are around me and over. And I only notice these things over time. Like even, even with the embossments, like I was doing embossments back in the day, um, you know, when I was more doing more conventional printmaking, but, uh, I noticed even if you take a pencil and press into a paper, that leaves an indentation into in the paper. And so even something just as subtle as that, like how can I use that to to some effect? And so since then I've been putting the grids on the paper instead of using a pencil, just using a blunt tool to create these little grooves in the paper that form the grids too. So just it's sculptural, saying, then there's a sculptural yeah. element to everything you do. Yeah, sure. Yep. Yeah. And what what about <laughs> breaking that meditative atmosphere? And um, I heard that you enjoy dancing occasionally to, <laughs> yeah. to sort of to break to break that that precision or whatever it is that focus. Can you speak a bit about what you do for fun, <laughs> like outside? That, of the well, talking about the music though, I have just downloaded about five songs that I saw on your from a playlist earlier on. There was oh Baby God. Rose over so Alice Smith something. Already with Beyonce and Major Lazer, Trouble, Sleep, yes. Yanga, Wake Am by Fila Kuti, Houseway by Thundercat, <laughs> Feel Good by Thierry Wack. So I've had these all on this afternoon, just getting completely That's channeled great. into Kentura world. I, <laughs> I mean, I, music helps me. It helps set the zone and the mood and the space. And I do take dance breaks because, you know, I'm, because a lot of the gestures I'm doing to make the work is so repetitive and... Especially, and even with working with the blurry images, like I'm so close to it that I have to like back away and look away for a little bit. So I'll take these dance breaks. You know, the music's already playing pretty loud all the time, but I'll turn it up even louder, take a dance break just to like loosen up the body. And then how long do these breaks last, Kenchira? How long, how long are these dance breaks? Oh, like, I don't know, like five, 10 minutes. Um, oh, wow. You know, I can quiet. do it. I can do it all the time. I mean, I can do it as much as I, I need as I'm working because sometimes my wrist gets sore, or my back will get sore. Um, but uh, yeah, those have become very important to me. And all these songs are on my current play playlist um <laughs> and fortunately you know i'm coming from la i've got so many musician friends so it's like exciting to be able to like feel connected to them by just listening to their to their music um outside the studio um i, I made a habit during after when quarantine stopped the pandemic started um when there's this museum here called uh, the Huntington Library and Garden Museum. Right. Um, beautiful gardens. And back in the fall, they reopened. So you can just go out there and walk through. And it's like, I went there when I was a kid. And then for a long time, just didn't occur to me to go there very much. And then when that opened, I'm like, I need to get outside because I could literally be inside working for like days at a time without going outside. <laughs> I was like, I need to get outside. So I, uh, I re up my membership and started going there on walks every week. And it's just so, it's just so beautiful. And because the property is so big, I can walk a different path every time I go. And sometimes I'll bring a book and just sit and read for a little bit. But, um, that's another thing I've come to enjoy doing, um, outside the studio. That's like so re relaxing and helps me kind of recalibrate, um, before I get back to work. You feel like someone who doesn't sit a lot of time on their phone. 
someone who kind of has a mobile phone, but it's cell phone that's just there and it's not something that you're kind of like <laughs> locked into? Uh, yes and no, because I need my phone to make the drawings. I keep a picture of the image I'm working on because oh, right. the photographs have, have a grid. And so I look to this sort of what I call a map as I'm drawing. So the phone is in my hand more than I want to admit, but right. I try not to, I, it's just, it is an effort sometimes to not get distracted with things. And I have to sort of like put it on do not disturb. So, um, I reduce distractions. You would How think I, you, well, yeah. I wouldn't do this, but I do. <laughs> <laughs> how often do you photograph then? Because that's as a starting point. And how do you find the people to photograph? Is it like street casting or are these friends and family? Is there a rule you set yourself for who you who you capture? I um, uh, tend to photograph people in my circle. So right. friends or friends of friends. There's There are people who repeatedly make appearances in my work, especially one of my very close friends who's um, a really fantastic dancer. And so she's just so comfortable with moving and everything that I tend to make a lot of drawings of her. Um, And then, uh, I mean, during with the pandemic, I guess it it did definitely slow down um, the frequency of photographing people. But it, it it'll happen. Um, usually what tends to happen is I'll sort of set a date and then tell a bunch of people and uh, friends and tell them that they can let other friends know. And then I'll just have like once, no, maybe like three times a year, just have these sort of photo shoot moments um, where a bunch of people come throughout the day, photograph them, then I'm sort of set. If I travel, I take my camera. So, um, you know, I was in Miami for the Fountainhead residency in December, took my camera there and photographed people who are in um, some drawings for a show I have coming up. And how important is travel for you? Because I, I know at the moment, obviously, none of, no one's been traveling, but I read that you'd also made a lot of work in, in Accra in Ghana. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love Ghana. It's like a second home now. I started going in 2013 for work. I quit my Mm -hmm. gallery job when my own practice was still in the in the arena being a side hustle. (laughs) I wasn't surviving off of being an artist, so my friends were looking for somebody to manage production for their clothing line, and they manufacture there in Accra. And so I started going. What I initially was meant to be like a six month trip turned into three years off and on until I went to grad school. And then even now I try and go back once a year and hopefully I'm going this summer um, to sort of figure out like a part-time year studio situation out there. So very connected to Ghana now. Um, But I love travel. Spent some time in Vietnam. That's another place I really enjoyed. Um, Love travel because it helps me see where I'm from better, you know, like you leave the place you live in and you notice all sorts of different things in relationship to a place that in some ways feels very different. So I love that kind of experience. Yeah. Amazing. Well, we ask every guest that comes on two very important questions. The first one is, 
if you could do an art heist, you could have any work of art. I mean, are you a collector? I see a, a, a work behind you, but I think that's one of your own. Is it in the the, this, the other side, the square, oh. the square one? Is that yours? Because it, the other side. Wait, wow. Yes. That's the, a weaving. Yes. That's, that's a weaving. Yeah, because your weavings take on this. They take on this geometric abstraction feel as well. Yeah. Well about them. But yeah. if you could do an art heist and you could have any work of art in the world, what would it be and why? Okay, so um, I thought I was thinking about this and I can for sure say it would be a work by Julie Maritou because she's my favorite artist of like all oh. time and place. Um, and Lovely. it's so hard. Um, partly, you know, part of it is like the paintings I love the most are so massive. So doing an art heist would also mean doing a house heist <laughs> to fit it in <laughs> um, so we need to get you the house to put it in i know i know so one of one of them is you know this pair that she that's now at sf moma um that's called howl eon and um they're two massive massive paintings that she in fact i believe she made them at a church in um harlem and so there's this fantastic video of her working on this painting, these paintings while Jason Moran, the jazz musician, is making music in there. And it's just so stunning. Um, so that's, that's one. And then as a printmaker um, and also loving her, what the sort of investigations that she's done with printmaking, there's another very large but not, not, not nearly as large, large piece called Epigraph, which is like a six-panel etching mm. and she's managed to make still images that are as dynamic as the paintings with these very complicated printmaking mm. um, methods so yeah yeah her prints are extraordinary and, and even her drawings and works on paper they're, they're just that they are extraordinary mm. I yeah. hung out with her a bit when I was about 24 or something 25 in New York because I was in my band so like she came three years ago and things <laughs> yeah. It was two years ago. Yeah. Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't answer that question though about collecting and what you have on your walls. Oh yeah, I you know fortunately as an artist, um, I'm in the position to do trades <laughs> with other artists. But yes. no, this is this is one I there's a, a print back here by this artist Kajal, and he's a painter and really fantastic paintings. I got this mono print um, that he did, I think, last year or the year before. And then I've got works by uh, classmates that I went to school, grad school with. And then mm -hmm. I actually used to work at a print atelier um, where Julie also did some prints. And I have now a couple of her prints. So oh, nice. um, some of the smaller ones. And then I have uh richard sarah Ellsworth kelly frank gary frank gary actually printed myself um a lithograph uh the architect wow. frank gary yeah um and who else am i missing i'm missing some folks but yes i love collect i love living with art so besides my own um i get try and when i can get work from friends and other people i admire so yeah, we're talking about Julie Marutu. She has just opened a solo at the Whitney, so I, I think yes. all the museums are opening up there now, right? Yeah, yeah, and 
now starting more museums are starting to open here too because they've been closed for a lot of them have been closed for quite a while huntington being one of the exceptions because of all the outdoor space they have yeah amazing and actually before before we move on to the last question you made a public work for the LA Metro. Mm. Yeah. And can you speak a bit about that? Because just thinking about art that's obviously been able to be seen when museums yeah. were closed. And, and large scale. Do you talk yeah. about Julia's yeah. work? Right. Yeah. What was it like to make to make that commission? Insane. Um, so this is a process <laughs> that started it started in 20... I think I applied for, for the commission in 2014. Got ch- and I was chosen in 2014, um, and then only very recently, like within the past month, I think they finally started installing the drawings on the line. So I, I actually, a couple of days ago, a friend of mine texted me a photograph of what she could see was installed um, oh my God. on the line. So it's very exciting right now. So LA Metro... And that's on Crenshaw, isn't it? Yeah, so LA Metro is building a new train station that connects LAX Airport with Central LA. So I'm doing, um, I got the station in downtown Inglewood, which is, I think, the closest station to the new football stadium that they built there. Um, Mm -hmm. And going back, and maybe this is like the full circle moment and the way to close this out. So uh, the what I propose is working with that term sonder which again describes this experience of noticing strangers and being curious about what their lives are like so when I got when I was chosen um, to uh, make site-specific work um, Metro helped me put a call out to basically invite anyone and everyone that had some association with that neighborhood Inglewood neighborhood so there was we did a few different shoots, but just tons of people, most people didn't know each other. So it was really kind of facilitating the very meaning of the word Sonder, bringing these people together who didn't necessarily know each other, and then basically photographing them being curious about the other people in the space. And so there are a series of 10 drawings that are composites of these photographs um, that I made during these shoots. of strangers noticing other strangers. And then those images are rendered by writing the word Sonder and its definition and repetition. And so it's great. It's like folks of the neighborhood and there they are in the neighborhood. And each drawing is four, each piece is four feet by 10 feet. 20 uh, feet, sorry, four feet by 20 feet. I was gonna say, I thought it was even bigger and than it's, that. And yeah. they're yeah. permanent, that's a permanent installation, right? Yeah. Yeah. Congratulations. That's amazing. And and they're all and they're all doubled and the blurring like like classic Kentura Davis work. They're I'll say classic. They're not this was pre-blur. This was pre-blur. But what you okay. see is sort of a horizon of people um sort of looking at each other, looking into the distance, just all the ways we tend to see people. And it was really meaningful for me because Putting it on the train station, that's also another site where you're mostly encountering strangers. And so mm-hmm. having this sort of reflexive thing between what the image shows and then what the actual experience is sitting there waiting for a train to come um, was kind of poetic for me. So Amazing. Encountering strangers. Wonderful. Um, and the last question we ask every guest is, what is your favorite color? 
Okay. So I'm going to say black because it's controversial as a color, and I love that. <laughs> awesome. Um, the idea that it, uh, it um, absorbs everything, so it's maybe all the colors, although white also can be argued as being um, all the colors, but I like it as, you know, we use black and tend to talk about black as a kind of color, but then scientifically there are arguments against that. But and so I like that sort of like blurriness of what is black. Mm. It takes you back to the cosmos as well and the, exactly. the, holes and... the mysteries yeah. and the unknowns. Yeah. yeah. Love. So what's, what's coming up for you? What, where can people see your work next? Um, in LA? Well, yeah. Uh, so, well, I'm really excited. Um, and I think they will have announced it or it, it will be like public knowledge by the time this comes out. The Walker Art Center just acquired something. So oh, maybe it'll nice. end up in the space at some point soon. One of the drawings that came, they got it from the show at Pippi Holdsworth. Brilliant. And then, um, congratulations. Thanks. Um, and then uh, a sh I'm in a group show now in Los Angeles that just opened at Bridge Projects called Otherwise Revival. And it's just, it's a phenomenal group show. So many great people in there. And then a solo show um, that opens next month that I'm hustling to finish right now <laughs> at Jeffrey Deitch. Jeffrey Deitch in New York opens May 8th. And it's a solo show. It's oh, a massive wow. space. So it's a lot of new yes. work, a lot of new work. Um, but Amazing. I'm really, really excited about it. So that's the next. Well, thank you for, for taking yourself away from those finishing touches <laughs> to speak to us. Oh, no problem. Well, this is, this, this took the been. place of one of my dance breaks. So <laughs> good one. <laughs> a lot of people say that about us. Can you? <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, thank you so much. So for everyone listening, we will be posting images of all the artworks we've discussed in today's episode. And on Instagram, what is your Instagram, Kintura? Kintura. Um, I was able to snag Kintura handle on everything I need. Um, so just don't forget the H at the end. Um, okay. Yeah. And we will link to you and we'll also be linking to Pippi Holdsworth, which is where Great. I first discovered your work. Mm -hmm. um, and what's your gallery in, in LA? Is it Matthew Brown? Matthew Brown where I'll have a solo yeah. show there in the fall. Wonderful. So you can also go to Matthew Brown and then, of course, Deitch, which is coming up in New York. Very exciting time. Very soon, yeah. Well, thank you so, 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 so much. We adore you. Thanks. And I really Thanks. hope we get to meet you next time we come. Same. I might actually, if I get to Accra this summer, I might try and go the route through London. And so if I do end up oh, wow. there, I'll um, have Pippi send you a note and or I'll send yes. all of us a note and maybe we can connect awesome. if it seems wise <laughs> that'd be great we'd love that that'd be great well thank you so right. much for listening thank everyone you. we'll be back very soon bye, okay. bye you've been listening to talk art with robert diamond and russell toby follow us on instagram at talk art where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode with music by jack northover subscribe to talk art at apple podcasts spotify acast or wherever it is that you get your podcasts give us a rating and write us a comment thanks for listening Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. 
From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com